Well, good morning. The Boy Who Was Bored by Andrew Peterson. I'm bored, says me. I'm bored, I say. My toys have all run out of play. And I've been sitting here all day without a thing to do. My shield won't block. My sword won't slay. They're all made of plastic anyway. Make believe would be okay. But none of it's true. I'd go and get my baseball mitt. But my baseball hasn't moved one bit. Besides, my bat's all out of hit. So why go out and play with it? My wooden pony's in the shed, and all my army men are dead. There's no monster neath my bed. I'm bored, says me, I say. The slide down at the park's been slid. The hide-and-seek, it's all been hid. I ride my bike, but it's been rid. Such a strange thing when a kid runs out of anything to do. Hey, could I play with you? Think of all the boring places you could be this morning. You could be at the DMV today. You could be at the library today. Boo. But you are in, right now, what most people would say is the most boring possible place you could be. The church. The church. And even more, you know what people do? Have you ever done this? Have you ever worried that you might grow bored in heaven? That things might lose their luster, lose their taste, that the whole novelty or the intrigue of heaven might fade, as most things do here on earth. And when you sing, when we've been there 10,000 years, some of your minds start to race and go, wait a second, that's kind of a long time. What if, what if uh, we're, we're doing nothing different than those days that when we first begun? That's a long time. And eternal life, is, it sounds wonderful at first, but if we're going to get a firm grasp on what the Bible has to say about eternal life, we begin to wonder, eternity is a really long time. Is this really something that I desire after 10 million years? Will I really want to be doing the same thing? Will I desire to do the thing that I'm thinking about right now? And at the heart of these questions lies a deep concern for whether or not eternal joy can actually exist in eternal life. My name is Pastor Milo. I am glad that you're here with us this morning, boring or not. The only thing worse than being bored is being boring, so I'll do my best not to do that this morning. If you've got a Bible this morning, and I hope you do, would you open to Revelation chapter 4? It's the last book of the Bible all the way to the right, Revelation chapter 4. And I want to ask this question, is heaven a boring place? Is heaven a boring place? Are you willing to admit it that you have ever actually worried about growing bored in heaven? Many people do. 
I actually heard someone say, I mean, like, the music, I like music, but a never-ending worship song, is that something that I want to be part of? In Revelation 4, we're going to read about today how God is going to sit on His heavenly throne in the biggest worship service ever, at the center of it all. And verse 8 says that the music never stops. Holy, holy, holy goes on and plays and repeat. It truly is, this is the song that never ends. It never ends, ever Ever. It just goes on and on, my friends. So holy, holy, holy. That's great. And that's true. But for all of eternity, couldn't the heavenly DJ spin up something different after a little while? Science fiction writer Isaac Asimov says this, I don't believe in an afterlife. So he's not a believer. I don't believe in an afterlife. So I don't have to spend my whole life fearing hell or fearing heaven even more. For whatever the tortures of hell might be, I think that the boredom of heaven would be even worse. Sadly, even among Christians, it's a prevalent myth that heaven will be boring. Boring. People sometimes say, I'd rather have a good time in hell than be bored out of my mind in heaven. This, this idea that hell is a place where we're going to hang around and shoot pool with our friends and make jokes about all the things that happened here on this earth, that is absurd, as I think you would agree. But in contrast, when we cannot envision anything beyond strumming a harp in a cloud or polishing the streets of gold, we're doing ourselves a disservice. Maybe you think of heaven as an individualized paradise where we get to retire and enjoy the earthly things that we enjoy here on earth so if you're a golfer that you're going to be able to drive the golf ball 500 yards and you're going to do that for all of eternity or if you're a bowler that you're going to bowl and you'll never miss a pin and you're going to do that for all eternity where you can eat all day and never get fat, where you can have uh, the time to read all the books that you never got to read here on earth, that you get to hang out with your friends forever, that you get to watch all the movies that you never got to watch before, and that you get to put on all these efforts and these individualistic pursuits and individualistic dreams and an individualistic heaven, what conclusion will you come to again? You're going to get bored. What a boring place. Well, fortunately, I... I believe that Revelation, particularly Revelation chapter 4, is going to paint us a different picture, a greater reality. And we can quickly reclaim the passage's main point, and you're going to see this in just a second, this central symbol, and guess what has nothing to do with you? (laughs) It's the throne. And the throne is mentioned 10 and sometimes in your translations up to 13 times in Revelation 4, which is a major clue for us that says, pay attention because this is important. So Revelation chapter 4, let's begin in verse 2 for now. At once I was in the Spirit and there was before me a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby and a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne, there were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in the front 
and in the back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. And the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying and singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creature give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worships him who lives forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. So is heaven a boring place? Is heaven a boring place? Why would anyone think, when you read this, why would anyone think, why would anyone believe that heaven would be a boring place? Here's why. We learned about a boring place when we read about it in a boring book. We learned about a boring place when we read about it in the boring book. Is the Bible a boring book? So this is the point that I'm making this morning for adults, particularly adults who are introduced to the Bible as children. And this is a point for the adults who are introduced to the Bible as adults by adults who are introduced to the Bible as children. Because what happens here, because either way you go, we know our Bible stories, but few of us know the story of the Bible or the reason that the Bible is written. And that's how we, the, the story of how we get the Bible in the first place. And understanding how we get the Bible is almost as important as understanding what's in the Bible. And many of you have been here uh, for only a few weeks, uh, maybe because you stayed away for the last year or just because we all are beginning to gather together again together in the same room. Uh, But maybe you haven't seen someone in a long time. Maybe you invited someone here this morning that you haven't seen in a long time. And you've told that person, or you haven't told that person that you're sitting next to. Or you haven't told the people that you came into church with here this morning. And you haven't told the person uh, that you spent a lot of time with. You haven't told the person that you're married to that, you know what? I just don't think that I believe all these stories anymore. I don't believe the stories Weren't those just those boring old stories that I read when I was a kid? Isn't this just a boring old book? And the problem is, the big problem is, the way that we get our Bibles is not the way that the world received the Bible. The way that we received the Bible is not the way the world received the Bible. It's been footnoted. It's in English. It's all been typeset. When you go through your Bibles, you see all these different references going everywhere. You see all these numbers that were put in there. When you got the Bible, it was all done. It was all completed, but that's not how the world got their Bible. I don't know about you, but my Bible's got my name on the front of this this authentic, fake, genuine leather. But that's not the way the world got their Bible. And if you don't understand how the Bible comes together, it's easy to discount the stories of the Bible themselves. It's easy to call it a boring book. It's easy to call heaven a boring place. But that's if you don't know the story of the Bible. You may be surprised to learn that the story of the Bible does not begin in the beginning. No, it begins somewhere in the middle range or middle towards the end range. 
The story of how we actually get the Bible begins with a first century doctor who is not Jewish, but Greek, and his name is Luke. And Luke actually spent the time necessary to document the events of the life of Jesus. And this reason that he documented these events in the life of Jesus is that he had a wealthy friend who kind of funded the whole thing, a man named Theophilus. So turn over in your Bibles, if you would, this morning to Luke chapter 1. I want to be able to show you this so that we understand the context of what we're holding in our hands here this morning. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from first were the eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So Theophilus was this first century Jesus follower, a first century Christian. And Theophilus, just like many people in the region of that world, they they hear these stories, they hear people talking about the eyewitnesses, talking about the life of Jesus and the miracles that they had seen him do. And they, they had put their faith in this Jesus. But they're hearing all these different snippets of stories. And Theophilus says, can someone put together the whole story, put an account of how this whole thing transpired? And it's a little bit like hearing about somebody you've got a lot of respect for and you hear little bits and pieces of the story or you hear two or three quotes, but at some point you go, okay, let me, let me hear the whole story. Someone put this whole thing together for me so I can understand how this all came to out, about, put in order for me. Is the Bible a boring book? Now, this is really important, what I'm going to say next. When Luke was writing... As Luke is writing this document, Luke is not writing the Bible. Luke is not writing the Bible. Luke had no idea that 2,000 years later that this thing that we're calling the Bible would ever exist. No, he is simply taking the time, being very meticulous about it, to write down as an eyewitness account of what he is seeing, what he's experiencing, and the stories that are being shared, and what he and others are also writing down what Jesus had done. Luke isn't writing the Bible. He's simply creating an orderly account of the events. And because Luke does this, we start to get an understanding of why we even have a Bible. The reason we have a Bible is because we can clear to those early followers of Christ, those who had lived life with him, experienced life with him, that this was a story that needed to be told. This truly was, this Jesus truly was the Messiah that had been prophesied. And his story needed to be told. Jesus is alive. And that's where the story of the Bible actually begins. And they believed that this story was not simply a message for the people in that region of the world. This this resurrection of Christ message needed to be communicated for the whole world. And so Luke goes on to document the next 30 or so years in a book that we call in our Bibles, the book of Acts, or Acts of the Apostles. And in there we see that Luke, Luke knows Peter. He interacts with Peter. And there are conversations between Luke and with Peter. There are conversations that are documented between Luke and John. And Luke and John and James, the brother of Jesus. These men all know each other. So is the Bible a boring book? Well, maybe... 
Maybe we are telling a boring story. See, these men have been together with Jesus. These are the men who are writing down the story. Do you call when Jesus tells his disciples, he said, some of you who are standing here will not taste death until you see the kingdom come into glory. And then he takes who? Peter, James, and John, and takes them up on a mountaintop, and he is transfigured before them. He is transformed. He is demonstrating the essence and the beauty of the creator of the universe is now tangible, visible, is present with them. How is it that we can make that story boring? How is it that we can suck the life out of it? How can we miss telling the story that the God of the universe had connected with men in this way. Well, I'll tell you the truth, it's not a boring story. And these men made sure that they talked about it. So those of you who are standing here, they are told, will not taste death until they see the coming King in glory. They probably thought, as they are seeing Christ transfigured before them, that this is what they're being told. That this is what they're being told that they were going to experience. But who's there? Peter, James, and John. And he's the one that's going to experience something different. But wait, there's more. See, John had not tasted death yet, but Peter and James had died as martyrs for this cause. The Roman government commanded John to stop talking about Jesus, but he refused to do so. The Roman government said, you must stop saying the name of Jesus or you will surely be executed. And you know what they did because they wanted to make it painful. They wanted to make it awful. They boiled him alive. And it didn't kill him. It didn't kill him. Why? Because there's one who is going to see the coming glory of God in his kingdom. So they exile him out to an island called Patmos. Patmos is a rugged area. It's basically a rock out in the middle of very, very troubled waters in the, in the middle of the ocean. It's about six miles by ten miles, this island there. And Patmos doesn't have very much vegetation because it has no protection from the winds and from the waves. They are fierce and storms come up out of the sea very suddenly. And at the top of one of the high points in one of the caves there at the top of the island of Patmos is an an ancient cave that, that history tells us, tradition tells us, this is where John physically was when Jesus shows up to meet with him. And so John, as he writes the words of Revelation, as he disperses these words, these visions, these mystifying scenes and symbols to be sent out and to be read by the seven churches, John wasn't thinking about the Bible John wasn't thinking about how can I finish off a really good story? How can I make this a New York best time seller? Best seller time, whatever, you got it. John wants to get the word out to encourage the churches. And this is one of the reasons, among others, why Revelation is full of signs and symbols. 
Because as the church is gaining so much momentum in that day, it's under the very watchful eye of the Roman government. And they were seizing documents. They were seizing them and, and then taking the person who wrote that document and throwing them into a court and having a kangaroo court and charging them with treason against the Roman government. Sometimes they would take their written scriptures and their writings. But can you imagine if a Roman soldier was to, to take this document out that we call the book of Revelation, and he looked at it and he go, what is this? This is super weird, man. I don't know what you're writing about. All these signs and all these symbols, I don't get this. And he gets confused and he says, here, take it back. Don't worry about it. And by doing so, it actually helps protect this document as it's being dispersed in the early church. Friends, this is not a boring story. It's fascinating. There's 404 verses that comprise the book of Revelation and almost 300 of them connect back in some form to the Old Testament reference, the Old Testament scriptures. And so, with the symbols that we read about, most of them being rooted there, this means that while it sounds weird to us, that a first century Jewish reader would know what they were talking about. He would make the connections with the apoptic literature of Daniel or Ezekiel or Zechariah and it would make sense to them, more sense even than it makes to us. Because they are all about orientation, helping to see what God is up to, what He is doing. Just like signs on a highway as you're going down the highway, they lead the reader along to Christ. Back to Revelation. Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. Verse 17 says this, when I saw him, this is Jesus Christ, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid for I am, get this, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, but now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore what you have seen. Check this out. What is now and what will take place later. You hear that language keeps coming back again and again and again. So friends, where is our hope? Where is our hope? Like Pastor Brian talked about last week when he introduced this sermon series with this illustration of a cupcake. Many of you were here last week. That, the cupcake, the idea of needing to take a bite of the whole cupcake. You need to cut through all the layers. The story that is being told here has the power to change lives, has the power to alter the universe. But we must stop telling boring stories. And we must start telling the great story that God is telling. We must stop reading a boring book. And we got to start sharing the holy and living word of God. We must stop worrying about whether we're going to be bored in heaven and start aligning our lives with the very throne of heaven. Revelation 4 verse 1. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. 
John says here is invited into the doorway into heaven. Jesus says, come up here and I will show it all to you. So what will he see? What will it look like? How will people behave? See, these are the questions that we continually ask about heaven. And in many, pe- in many ways, people imagine that getting into heaven will be very much like getting a winning lottery ticket. People imagine that getting into heaven is going to be very much like getting a pass or a ticket uh, that is a winning lottery ticket. So up to now, the highest Powerball I'm aware of in history is $1.6 billion. It was a few years back, but do you remember everyone getting super crazy about it? I do. I looked it up. The odds are 292 million to one that you would not win the Powerball. You'd be more likely to be struck by an asteroid than you would to win the Powerball. So I went back and read about it. This week there was a clerk on the news who was being interviewed and he was selling tickets to people, buying $2 tickets so they could win the Powerball. There's a line all the way around his store and the interviewer asked, he says, so what do you think? Why are so many people coming out to buy this ticket? What are they buying? And this clerk, just a store clerk, had this super interesting answer. It caught my attention. It said that, he said this, they're buying hope, $2 worth of hope. And then he explained what he meant. He said, they take their ticket home, and when their number is read on the news, the first number is their number, and the second number is there, and they say, hey, that's, that's my number. And they get all excited after the second number. It's their number again. They're excited. The third number, though, that's not their number. And that was it. But for a while there, they had hope doesn't last long but what they're buying is two dollars of hope what i want to share with you this morning is something that is a whole lot better than two dollars worth of hope it's called the blessed hope when paul writes to titus he says looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great god and savior jesus christ the blessed hope the apostle peter he calls it a living hope living hope because it is living through the one who promised it to us and he is alive because of the resurrection and therefore hope is alive in our lives here and now you see kings rule from their thrones and god is doing just that this picture that we have in revelation 4 you can think of it as the divine command center of the universe If you go back into the Old Testament, just like the readers who are looking at this, first century Christians are are going to look at this. This is what their mind is going to do. They're going to think back to the different ways we see God's throne. And in the Old Testament, God's throne as a symbol is not so much about where we go when we die, but, but who's ruling over our world today, now, in the present. So fix your eyes on the throne. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald and circled the throne. So remember, as John is writing this, as Revelation is being written, the Roman Empire had conquered all of the known world. The Americas were across the ocean and Africa and Asia were beyond that. But all the other areas of the world that had not been yet encountered, they were all captured here by the Roman government. 
Their maps were all of the Mediterranean world, and Rome ruled every square inch of it. But what's being stated here, what John the Revelator is saying, that he is challenging Rome's claim to global domination by looking at a higher throne. A higher throne. God is the rightful ruler of the earth. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumbles and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. And in the center, around the throne, there were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in the back. And so as John is being caught up, snatched up into heaven, what's the first thing that catches his attention? It's the throne. It's not Aunt Lucy. It's not where, oh, there's all the people that I wanted to interact with and I haven't seen in a while. That'll come. But first and foremost, it's the throne. I have seen the throne and the one who sits upon it. Dwight L. Moody used to say this about heaven and about how our hope for, where our hope for heaven rests. He says this, It's not the jeweled walls. It's not the pearly gates that are going to make heaven attractive. It's just being with God. Being with God. That's why heaven is more than a what or a where. It's really a whom. In heaven, you'll be where he is. What is Moody trying to get our minds to, to focus on? It's, it's not about the things and the stuff. The idea that we would walk through the doorway to heaven and we'd be enamored by all the stuff is foolishness. Our eyes will be drawn to, our hearts will be pulled towards the throne, the King of glory. We will be captivated by Christ as John was. Because he is worthy of our worship. Jump down to verse 11. You are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. All of the people, all of the the beings, all of of the the elders that are there, the 24 elders, none of them can get over how holy and wonderful and glorious and transcendent and awesome and majestic how God is and how wonderful it is to be with God and to see God. And in the scriptures we know that no one here on earth is ever allowed to see God and live. But now to be one day in a glorified state where you can see and put your eyes on the glorified Savior, that that would transform and do something in us that is incredible. It would draw us to Him. And you will not want to take your eyes off of God. You won't want to take your eyes off of Jesus. It will be like being at a party that you never want to leave. It will be like being in a conversation that you never want to end. It'll be like being in a movie that you would like to just continue on and on and on. It'll be like having a meal with dear friends that you're eating and it tastes so delicious and you wish that you wouldn't get full because you want the meal to continue. It'd be like taking a sip of water when you're utterly dehydrated and it's completely refreshing and you can drink deeply over and over and over and you could drink deeply all day 
long. Heaven will not be boring. You will be with your creator and you will be in a glorified state. You won't know sin any longer. You will be filled with joy. No longer will you be plagued by the remorse of the decisions that you made that day or how you spent your morning. You'll be able to live out with God's perfect purpose for you for eternity. I think that's something that we all can look forward to. You see, Christians who are suffering, whether it's present day or in first century Christianity, are prone to forget about God. The circumstances of life can overwhelm us and what we can do is fix our eyes, fix our attention entirely on ourselves. What Revelation 4 does here, the reason why we see all this emphasis at the throne is it takes our eyes and turns our eyes to the most important being in the universe and challenges us to behold your God. And God is sitting there on the throne. And when we see God and we realize that He is indescribably majestic, that He is beautiful, lovely, and awesome, and that none of us is worthy to stand in His presence. When we all get to heaven, you'll look around and you'll see someone and say, wow, I didn't know He was going to be here. Someone's going to look at you and say, That's a surprise. But when you look at yourself, you will also be amazed and humbled that you could ever step foot in glory. Why? Because everything about the throne, everything about heaven is all about perfect, holy nature of God. And not one of us has any business anywhere near there. There's a great gulf between us and God, breached only by His Son, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. As the band comes forward this morning, I want you to be reminded by something that I went by pretty quickly here. Beginning In verse 1 that John says, After these things I looked, and behold, there was a door standing open in heaven. You see, no matter how many terrible jokes you hear, there is no Peter with a clipboard at the pearly gates. No, uh, uh, Peter has nothing to do with it at all. The only way to go through that gate, Jesus has everything to do with it. He says, I looked and behold, there's a door standing open to heaven. How is that door open? It's because of what Jesus has done. I am the door. The only way you may enter through this door is that you are saved by the blood of the Lamb. This morning, if you are here, when I began at the beginning, you had to nod your head and say, yeah, I actually did think that heaven was going to be pretty boring. Or if you're here and say, I grew up in the church and... And I received my Bible in a way that I'm still looking at the Bible as if I was a child. And I'm reading some good stories, but it hasn't done anything to change my life. Be reminded today of the true nature of the gospel. I was lost, but now I am found.
and what Jesus did there at the cross to allow that gap to be crossed. He gave himself for you and for me. Why on earth are you waiting? Why on earth would you not want to be part of glory together with the Heavenly Father? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. The invitation is there. Would you give your life to Jesus Christ this morning? And you and I will all be there one day saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And there's plenty more I could say about that, but let's go back to the scene this morning. The one that you're all familiar with where Jesus is with his disciples at the Last Supper. And he says this, he says, Let not your heart be troubled. This is when he's in the the upper room. He's spending his last meeting, his last huddle there. He says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, he says, there are many mansions. If we're not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. When you've reached out and grabbed a hold of that hand, when you've accepted Jesus' gift on the cross, he says, I'm coming back for you. I'm preparing a place for you, and there you may be also. He didn't say, I'll send for you. There'll be a car waiting for you. No, he says, I'm coming back for you, and I'll come for you. So this morning, you have there in front of you a communion cup, sitting in the, in the row in front of you. We do this each month, the first Sunday of the month, as a reminder for us. See, when Jesus sat there with his disciples, he had that last holiday, he said, they felt like he was coming again soon. And somehow we've lost sight of that, that Christ is coming again soon. And those disciples, again, they had no idea that it would take 2,000 years and we could still continue to read what they had written. they were convinced that this story was worth telling that the life changing life altering mission of Jesus Christ and for his church was worth it so communion is a time it's a shared meal together I know that's a stretch to call this a meal together but we're going to work with it this morning It's for the church. It's for the believers, those who've already given their lives to Jesus Christ. If you have not done that yet this morning, I pray that you would just hold off. Just wait for for a moment. Because this is for the believer. To be able to understand and be reminded. It says, this do in remembrance of me. To be reminded of the sacrifice that was made on your behalf and on mine. So that we don't get focused on ourselves and the things and stuff of this world. That we turn and return our focus back to that heavenly throne so communion is a whole lot more than eating a small bit of wafer and drinking some grape juice this is a simple act for us to be reminded by his body being broken for us his blood being spilled for us it's a time to think solemnly about Christ sacrificing himself for us it's more than a religious ritual 
It's the common union that binds us together. This is what we have in common. This is the purpose of the local church, and it is not boring. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which has been broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. In the same way, he says, he also took the cup after supper. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance. that are aligned and focused on the throne of glory. Lord, we wait expectantly for that day, but we also know that we will never be able in our our finite minds to be able to understand the infinite. So Lord, this morning I pray as we dig through this chapter 4 in Revelation that we just got a glimpse of glory. And in doing so, that it would change our lives in the here and now. Thank you for your word. We thank you that it's alive and active. We pray that it is piercing even now this morning. In Jesus' name we pray.